0: You're listening to All The Best, I'm Danny Stewart. This week, stories showing the harsh reality of the climate emergency. People who live in the New South Wales Northern Rivers are used to flooding, but earlier this year, the region was hit by two unprecedented floods only weeks apart. The first trapping people in ceiling cavities and on the roofs of their houses for hours overnight.
1: Many people have made the choice to settle in Lismore because it's almost one of the last affordable places for us to be able to stay in this area. So a lot of us who did buy thought that we would be dealing with a moderate inconvenience of having water underneath our house and having to move our cars, but we didn't sign up for
2: this. Lucy Wise was born in Lismore. She grew up in the area, left, returning in 2017 with her husband Tim and buying a house. That same year, Lismore flooded.
1: After cleaning up, we decided to put everything we could into the home and make it as safe as we could. So we raised it one year ago to above the 1974 height. So we're four metres off the ground now. You know, it was a huge achievement for us to raise the house. We did it with our own funds and there was no government
2: funding available at the time. One year after raising their home on February 27, 2022, Lucy and Tim's home was tested as rain started falling in the night swelling rivers and threatening to top Lismore's flood levy. Lucy stayed awake, checking her phone. The messages started coming in that the
1: flood was going to be bigger than expected. So at first it was 10.5 metres, then we got a message that it was 11.5. A few hours later, it was 12.5. As the rain started pouring down and we saw how fast the water was rising, I got to a point at around 2am where I was like, "Okay, it's happening, we have to get ready. So we started raising everything in our house. I got myself, my husband and my son up in the ceiling cavity with a life jacket, torch, food, my wedding dress, a box of photos, my work computer. I was so tired and so stressed. It got to a point where it just became about safety. We had two of our neighbours who were sheltering here as well. While we were sheltering up in the ceiling where the rain was, I've never heard anything that heavy in my life.
2: Lucy's neighbours called the SES to report their location. And while they waited, they watched the water rise over their own home across the street.
1: By about 6am, our neighbours who were here called us out of the ceiling and said the SES are here. And as we got down, there was probably 30 centimetres of water in the house and we jumped on the SES
2: boat. And then we went and collected most of our neighbours. After Lucy evacuated, her house was inundated by brown, muddy water that stopped just below the ceiling. She was able to evacuate to a friend's home. It's powerful, the force of nature and the water there. On higher ground around 80 kilometres from Lismore, Freya Woodland was sheltering from the torrential rain in her Troopy. So I'm from Melbourne originally, and I built out my
3: car, troop carrier over lockdown, and headed up the coast in November. So I was around Northern Rivers for a couple of months visiting friends and family, and then the floods hit and the water was flowing heavily. There was rivers popping up on top of the hill that were drains that turned into above knee-deep rivers, and all the reception was out, and I got stuck up Mount Jerusalem on a property up there for about a week and a half and once we busted out of there over some pretty sketchy roads and pretty gnarly four-wheel driving managed to get out of there
2: and back to civilization back to food about 10 days after the flood Freya headed into Lismore she drove past the Currie Mail building which had been set up as a space for the local community to access help with cleaning inches of mud from their houses to find camping gear food clothing and hot meals. So we're sitting right next to the levee wall
3: and behind you there is the reading of the meterage. That goes to 13.2 and there's also a record of all the floods over Lismore's history. One in a 100 year flood, one in 500 year flood and both of the floods in the past few weeks have been over the 100 year flood mark. The first flood that we had six weeks ago got to 14.2.
2: We're in a place called the Quad, which is in the middle of Lismore. Multiple community spaces sprang up in the days and weeks after the flood, including Susie Russell's. Trees, not bombs.
4: There's the most magnificent fig tree, just huge and extraordinary, and so Our marquee, which is like an old circus marquee, it's sort of blue and white stripes with a red and white stripe valance is strung up under that tree. We've sort of nestled it in underneath it. I decided to call this food venue Trees Not Bombs. I have friends here that go back nearly 30 years. Because in my little village on the mid-north coast about 30 years ago, people from here came to help us protect some old-growth forests. I saw some of those same people out in their dinghies rescuing people when the big flood hit and others saying, hey, we're hungry, we've got no food, and felt like, you know, they're my mates and I couldn't just sit at home and do nothing. So with a couple of friends, we gathered an eclectic couple of loads of gear and headed up to try and bring some nourishment and nurture. It was a seven
2: hour drive for Susie and her friends.
4: We drove up, it was raining, dark, there were plenty of potholes and then we came in in the morning and were confronted by just the mountains of everyone's lives outside their houses. It was just one of those things that you'll never forget. The whole place was smashed. When Freya
2: first arrived at the Mail hub, she volunteered with teams of people to clean out flooded houses. I've gone out and done house demos and helped people fix up their places as well and rip out walls and clean up. But Freya developed a lung infection. So that's when she started volunteering on the administration desk at the Curry Mail. It's been incredible being here and organising volunteers and hearing people's stories. Like, there are people
3: who have just cleared out their own houses and organised themselves and then come down straight away to help out the rest of their community. And then there's people that have come from Melbourne. We've had people come from far up north and just people down all over the place.
2: Within weeks of the worst flood on record, a second flood hit the area. There was a
3: lot of people in disbelief. A lot of people didn't think it was going to happen and then a lot of people were panicking and thinking that it was going to be worse than the first flood, which was the worst one ever. So it was really like a big mix of emotions there. It did start raining. We started packing up. We got everything upstairs from the bottom story. We packed down the whole marquee, the kitchen, which we run hot meals out of every
4: day. We packed all of that up, got everything on trucks. So we were over in that corner until the second flood. We had to pull everything down, pack everything up until the water had gone down enough for us to be able to come back and set up again. So that was over a week ago now and I'm just astounded by how slow the official response is. I'm also really concerned that the needs of people for hot food and to be able to sit down is not recognised as part of an official response to disaster. Why aren't there mobile camp kitchens that have what we have, that can set up, do hot food, give people a table and chair to sit at, so they feel like they are actually got somewhere to be and be at peace for a little while? Rain is what happened here. The devastating impact of these intense rainfall events... Is made much worse by the removal of trees and the ongoing logging and land clearing and of course at the same time we've also got our government in Australia pledging huge amounts of money for military equipment and yet paltry amounts of money to be able to help people when they'd lost everything was absolutely obscene. There's still piles of rubbish everywhere. It was mountains
1: and mountains of loss and waste and just every personal belonging you can imagine just on the side of the road. So fridges, washing machines, photos, clothes, furniture, bedding, everything you own in a home essentially just emptied out onto the street. You think that water couldn't be as damaging. We've got a giant gaping hole out onto our back deck which was a wall, which we've gotten rid of because of the water damage. In the living room now, which has turned into our sort of shed storage area, we've got random building materials, lots of flaky paint. We've ripped off all the skirting boards and there is mold as well in the wall cavities, which we need to treat. A lot of us, like, we're resourceful communities, so we hate the waste that this flood has produced as well. It's not just the personal devastation, it's the environmental devastation. Some days I'm hopeful where if I just focus on the day-to-day and I just break it down into increments, it's like, okay, I need to scrape the paint and repaint and just put some skirting boards and this this room will be back together and it'll be great. And I still love my home. You know, I brought my son home here after he was born and it's our first home together.
3: We've been here, yeah, five years. And so there's a lot of memories. It's been... A pleasure to be here and witness the way that the community has come together and worked together and shown up just with no red tape no boundaries we're here to help everyone it's been beautiful to see the hearts and souls of people and just the smiles and the resilience and there's so much power within that the people coming down and supporting one another and holding one another no matter what their background or their story
1: A lot of the renters in the area have obviously had to relocate, whereas most of the homeowners, I guess, at this point are staying. It's just really complex because if you think too far into the future, we just don't really have anything to hold on to in terms of certainty, and there's no easy way out of the situation. We're a very proud community in Lismore and we love our town, and I don't want to leave. I still want. To be in this area, but yeah, just seeing the reality of this devastation in the CBD and the scale of the disaster, I just don't know how long it's going to take to bounce back and what our town is even going to be. We may rebuild and bounce back, but we all know that there will be another flood and just this collective exhaustion. You know, for us dealing with like at least two major floods in the five years since we've been here, it's like how many more can we deal with?
0: That story was produced by All The Best supervising producer, Sarah Mashman. You're listening to All The Best. I'm Danny Stewart. All The Best is a great place to learn the art of audio storytelling. Never made a story before? No problem. No experience is required. If you'd like to make a story for the show, get in touch. Visit allthebestradio.com. This week, stories which lay bare the grim reality of the climate emergency. In the summer of 2019 to 2020, Kangaroo Island experienced the biggest fires ever seen there. Lisa visited the island two years later. And a content warning, this story contains mention of animals in distress.
5: It's a landscape with huge eucalypts and deep forests and hills, everywhere hills, but the sea is never far away and so you've got this constant feel of moisture in the air that sometimes you can smell the salt and the seaweed and when that mixes with eucalyptus leaves, ah, my heart sings.
6: Margie Prideau lives on Kangaroo Island a 45-minute ferry
5: ride from Cape Jervis in South Australia. The other thing, though, about Kangaroo Island is it's a soundscape. We have got so many birds here. You have your senses filled in every way, your smell, your sight, and your hearing is just full of livingness and the absence of human noise. Environmentally, it's significant because it's been isolated from the mainland for a long time. We've got a number of endemic species, many of which are insects, but we've also managed to keep a lot of the diseases and the evils that ail so many other places in Australia at bay. There is a harmony here that's been struck Even though our koalas are actually not a native species to Kangaroo Island, this is an ark for them and they don't have chlamydia, and that's a blessing for them because that's a horrendous disease in those animals. In the marine environment, we don't have as many of the introduced pest species along our coastline. We've got a few, but in the main, we've got very pristine coastlines. So we have a lot of the smaller, organisms that are now missing in many metropolitan areas, especially where there are large ports. For almost
6: 30 years, Margie has worked in international politics,
5: specifically in environmental
6: and wildlife law.
5: I have been a negotiator and an advocate for wildlife and communities that are protecting wildlife around the world.
6: She and her husband, Jeff, live on the western end of the island and own a farm and vineyard. They moved to Kangaroo Island 12 years ago.
5: We came here for a holiday. We fell in love with the landscape within half an hour, like many people do. When we had been on the farm for a little while, we recognised that it was really important to volunteer where the need was greatest, and we felt a a responsibility to our neighbours to be able to be useful in a fire.
6: Margie and Geoff are volunteers for the Country Fire Service,
5: the CFS. I have been a CFS member for seven years. I'm trained to be on a truck, but I don't go on a truck because my skills are better used in the fire station. So that's where I tend to be. My husband did for a while go out on trucks, but we've agreed that after the Black Summer fires, he'll be in the station too. December 20th was a hot day and we were preparing to water the vineyard as we would always do. At the end of 2019
6: lightning strikes hit native scrub and farmland along the island's north coast.
5: The sky was blue and open. We thought the forecast for the storms was not going to come to pass. We were surprised at how quickly it came over the horizon. The lightning strike was very close to our farm. It was literally in the next farm over from us. So Jeff was on the farm fire unit within... 20 minutes of seeing the smoke on the horizon.
6: The fires, known as Duncan and Menzies, were fought for 10 days, non-stop. Margie was on duty
5: as a CFS radio operator. It's a role of needing to practise calm because you need to have very clear communication going between the trucks and the station. Quite often when radio communication becomes difficult between the command vehicles that are out in the field helping to direct where the trucks need to be and the fire trucks themselves, you end up being a conduit for information. So it's about listening and relaying information that you're not responsible for.
6: Then, on December 30, lightning strikes lit up bushland in Flinders Chase National Park. The heat from those fires formed two pyrocumular nimbus clouds, firestorms.
5: The worst happened on the day that I was rostered off. Profoundly grateful not to have had to listen to people's fear. That would have broken my heart even more um, because so many of those voices are friends and uh, I've since discovered what they went through and I'm amazed they're still with us. To be honest, I'm glad I didn't hear their absolute terror while it was happening. The radio operator on that day is a very brave man. Was that January 3rd? Yeah, that was January 3rd. January 3rd was the day our home and everything that we had at that time was gone. And it was that pyrocume cloud that caused the ravine fire to just rapidly roll across the landscape. The collective wisdom until the Kangaroo Island fires was that we didn't have enough land mass to be able to have this type of storm happen. But what ended up happening is it was fed by the wet air off the sea. The wet air and the intense heat rapidly rise, hit the inversion layer above us and smash back to earth with super, super heated air and effectively go off like a big bomb. So they spread across the landscape at a frightening speed. Our cleanup started really quickly because the vineyard was all that was there, that was alive. It was in desperate need of water. We also had to do something which broke our hearts, which was lift the fence around the vineyard to protect it from the wildlife that had survived. They were in there, the couple of kangaroos and probably a dozen wallabies, severely burnt animals, but they were stripping the bark off the vines. And these are vines that are already in serious stress. Uh, it was a heartbreak, really a heartbreak. But the other thing was those animals weren't gonna survive, they couldn't survive. Their injuries were too bad. And the vines were the reason we were there. So. We had to make that choice. It took months, really, for the soundscape to come back on the farm. I was lying in the bunk bed, my heart breaking at the profound, prolonged silence, and then, out of the dark, comes a booble cow call, and I cried myself to sleep with happiness. before the fire. If I were to walk 50 meters, there would be probably a few thousand species that I would encounter in that walk. And that would be everything from mammals to the large plants, down to a festoon of insects and tinier organisms. Now, in places, that biodiversity is coming back. But where I live, Sadly, if I were to walk that same 50 metres, and when I'm doing this exercise in my head, I'm thinking of my creek line on the farm. Without having done this scientifically, I would be surprised if I had 20% of that now. We have to acknowledge what happened and we need to adapt to it. If we don't, we'll have nothing left. We lost so much biodiversity in the Black Summer fires decades of conservation work have been wiped out. We need to say that. We need to acknowledge it. And that I know robs people of hope. I know that it's a bad message, but until we're truthful about what's happening, we are not going to adapt. My experience on Kangaroo Island has shaped the way that I see policy in a very profound way. And I feel very passionate now about the need for communities across the world, not just my own, but across the world to be handed their autonomy. The state government gave money to a recovery process, which it did quickly and admirably in that respect. I don't know that everything though that was rolled out was particularly well thought through. And I don't know that there was enough of a playbook, which to me is a little bit shocking given that fires had been burning for months before Kangaroo Island was lit. And I would have thought that there would have been some disaster planning going on. And it just felt like everything that was happening was a knee-jerk reaction. It wasn't at all thought through. We will have another catastrophe in my lifetime. We'll probably have another catastrophe inside the next 10 years. And when that happens, there will be more that won't come back and then more the next time biodiversity is on its way out, sadly, across the whole world. And uh, after a lifetime spent in conservation, I cry every night. We need to say the words so that people can understand that what happened here was a siren going off that the world needed to hear. And it's a siren that's gonna go off again inside the next decade. Climate change isn't somewhere in the distant future. It's in the room with us now.
0: That story was produced by Lisa Burns. Our stories this week are part of From the Embers, a show which visits communities around Australia affected by fire, flood and the pandemic. A new series is out now and you can hear it wherever you get your podcasts. All the best would like to acknowledge the traditional owners of the lands on which we make these stories and pay our respects to Elders past and present. All the Best is made at FBI Radio on Gadigal land, in association with SIN and 3RRR, on Wurundjeri, Woiwurrung and Boon Wurrung lands, and C on Arunda and Warramungu lands. The All the Best editorial manager is Mel Chun. Emma Pham and Anusha Rana are our social media producers and Lydia Yosefova is our community and events coordinator. This episode was mixed and compiled by Johnny Janks. Shiningberg composed our theme music and Annie Hamilton designed the artwork. We're heard across Australia on the Community Radio Network and were made possible by the Community Broadcasting Foundation. You can find out more at CBF. .org.au You can find more episodes by searching for All the Best wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Danny Stewart. Thanks for listening.